Hi there, I'm Neve Shaw and this is Humans of Space, a podcast about curious people. More specifically, it's chats with people that I've met along the journey so far in getting to space. People from many parts of the world, people who've inspired me, people who do interesting things, know interesting stuff, have figured out great things, or people who want to change the world. Curious people who are happy to chat with me about their lives, their passions, and explore together what drives us to be the people we need to be. I like to think that Humans of Space is a blend of space, science, curiosity, and creativity for ears of all kinds. But I guess that's up to you to decide. lots of lessons that we can learn from each other so I hope in in these following podcasts that we'd all pick up a little nugget or two from all these people. But the first guest of Humans in Space is particularly special. It's an astronaut. His name is Bob Thirsk, a former astronaut for the Canadian Space Agency. He's flown on two missions to space, one in 1996 on the Space Shuttle Columbia for a 17-day mission And then his second mission was a six-month mission on board the International Space Station back in 2009. Why Bob is particularly special, though, for me, is that he really understands the human message of space. That perspective that if we could all see it, perhaps we could change our relationship with the planet and take better care of it. Something that's at the core of everything that I do. So for our very first Humans of Space to celebrate Festival of Curiosity, I'm very lucky to have um, Bob Thirsk join us for our very first session. So I met Bob back in 2015 when I was attending the Space Studies program in Ohio. And he was the first astronaut that I ever had a face-to-face conversation with. And I think I struck gold. Bob is from Canada and he has a degree and a master's in engineering and a doctorate in medicine and an MBA from MIT. And in all of that, he's been an astronaut as well, who I believe has a very deep understanding of the human relevance of space. But we'll get into all that at a later stage. So, Bob, thank you very much for joining us uh, to Ireland tonight. How are you? Uh, doing uh, well under these turbulent uh, times. It's um, it's really a strange, bizarre time that we're living in right now, but I'm keeping happy and uh, healthy and busy. And what's it like in Canada? So which part of Canada are you in right now? I'm in Ottawa, which uh, we consider to be in eastern Canada. If you know where um, upstate New York is, we're just uh, north of, of there. Ottawa is a government town. And what that means is uh, most of the citizens like to follow rules. <laughs> so all the, uh, you know, the home isolation rules that are required for us to um, minimize the, the infection rate are, are being followed here in Ottawa. And I'm one of those people. So I'm, I'm happy and healthy at uh, home by following the rules. I'm a rule keeper as well. I've been very vigilant. And so on the ground, what is lockdown? What does it look like in uh, where you are? Up until about a month ago, we were all asked to remain at home. And that means, of course, that um, you could go out to essential services like uh, like the grocery store or to the, the pharmacy, the drugstore. Uh, over the last few weeks, uh, the economy has slowly opened up now. So a few more businesses are able to be open. So, for example, restaurants cannot open, but if they have a patio, an outdoor patio, then and, and they can arrange the tables so that we can maintain social distance, then those kinds of businesses uh, can open as um, as well. But for the most part, we're we're still working from home. Very few people, except for essential workers, police, uh, firefighters, uh, healthcare workers, are are working uh, outside of the home. 
Yeah, it's kind of similar to us. We're just about to get to where you are, where we are having the same uh, restaurant thing. As long as people can eat outside, we have the we have the same kind of situation. It's been a very strange year and it certainly made me reflect on some of my priorities. Has it changed any of your priorities? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, you know, your first thing you think about is people who are vulnerable, people who are marginalized. Uh, it seems like whenever some global crisis occurs, whether it's um, a pandemic or um, a hurricane or a flood, it, it's always the marginalized people, the homeless, the small business owners, the, the aged that are um, mostly affected. And it, it tells me that to prepare for the next pandemic or whatever the next global crisis is, in the meantime, we, we've got to get rid of the inequalities that exist in our society. If we can do that, then that'll put us in a better position to face whatever the next crisis will be and when it will come. Yeah. And that, and that kind of brings us nicely onto space. What potential do you think space has for us as not even just as a, as a race, but as groups of societies? What have you learned from your time, your two missions to space, once on the space shuttle and then on the International Space Station in relation to that whole issue on equality and being better citizens? Well, when I was uh, very young, you know, what attracted me to space, of course, was the the sense of discovery, the um, adventure. You know, I wanted to do what the early uh, American astronauts and, and Soviet cosmonauts uh, were doing. But since I committed to space as my career, I've learned that it has a lot of pragmatic benefits as well. So it, it can actually um, help our economies. Uh, Canada has an economy that benefits from our involvement in space, not just in terms of jobs, but also in terms of bringing income into the, um, the country. Uh, the science and technology discoveries are very meaningful. If there's one area that has benefited from spin-offs of space engagement, space technology, it's healthcare. A really good example would be yeah. from my home university at the University of Calgary, where a neurosurgeon has adapted the technology that uh, the Canadian government put into the robot arm on the space shuttle and on the International Space Station to create a, a neurosurgical robot, a two-meter-long robot that can do very precise surgery on people's brains to remove tumors, to correct uh, venous malformations, to remove the effects of hydrocephalus. And then the, the last thing I think is it inspires um, the public to take on audacious goals. You know, when I was young, uh, I grew up in the 60s and the 70s, and we, we did space flight because it was, uh, it was like an impossible dream to pursue. It was audacious. It re required us to mobilize large numbers of people across a lot of disciplinary boundaries, and we succeeded. And I yeah. see today's society, you know, in um, 21st century, you know, I, I may not, this may not be true, Neve, but I just sort of perceive that we're becoming more and more risk averse. We're, we're scared of failure. And I, I think yeah. that we should yeah. be pushing our, not only our societal boundaries, but put our, push our individual boundaries as well. And, and that's what, space has done for me. I can truthfully say that every week uh, when I was an astronaut, I pushed myself to my limits, not just my mental limits, but to my physical and emotional and spiritual limits as, as well, to pursue these audacious goals that uh, we had set for ourselves. So I think those are the big benefits of the space program. There are some pragmatic economic benefits, but I think uh, it also teaches us who we are and, and what we can become. Where did that come from for you? Where did you, I know that we were all inspired by, I know the moon landings had a massive influence on a lot of people to pursue a career in space, but but it takes more than that. Like, where does that come from? You know, the way that you were able to push yourself beyond to your absolute limit in space. 
who gave you that? Where did it come from? Any idea about that? Uh, yes, I, you know, some people say that it's part of my DNA. It's part of, um, you know, my, my genetic makeup. I'm not so sure about that. It, it probably is partly, but I also think that it's the nurturing that I've had from the people that I've met, family and friends, from the era that I lived in, and also from the places that I have lived. So first of all, my parents were, were remarkable people. My father was a bit of a dreamer. My mother was very uh, organized, very pragmatic, meaning that like every child, we know how to play our parents, get what we want. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I would all, when I get a, an idea on something that I, that I want to do, you know, go climb mountains or go backpack around Europe, I'd always go to my father first and say, Dad, what do you think of this? And he would say, oh, yeah, this sounds great. It's an opportunity for you to, to grow and to see the world and to travel and to learn. Go for it. And then, of course, he'd send me to go see my mother and then she would help me put together, um, you know, a plan, a budget plan and how to get organized and, and pack these trips. So I think parents uh, played a big role. Um, I think it's also the, the time that I lived in. You know, I, I lived in the 60s and the 70s, and it was a magical time for society then. There was a lot of things going on, not just in space, not just in science, but also in education and in entertainment. You know, the, the music was changing every year. It's, mm. uh, that's the era when uh, the Sgt. Pepper's album came out. And then there's a lot of things happening in society. You know, the, the uh, civil rights affairs that are happening yeah. today actually occurred back in the 60s and 70s as, as well. So I think all of that made a difference on me. And then maybe if I can say one more thing, Neve, I think also mm -hmm. where I, I grew up played a role as well. And I grew up in a, in a country, Canada, which, um, you know, in, in a sense was founded on explorers and pioneers. You know, some of the... The explorers that were important to me, I read their biographies. These are people that lived 200, 300 years ago. And their personal characteristics, their vision, their decision-making, their, their cultural awareness, their desire to pursue audacious goals, they, um, they inspired me. And in fact, if a space program had existed 200 or 300 years ago, I think Canadians <laughs> would have been the first <laughs> astronauts. <laughs> so all, all of this collectively, I think, had an influence on... Um, my sense of discovery, my pursuit of adventure, my ability to, to pursue my, my limits on a, on a regular basis. So in, in one sentence, I, I think uh, I was very lucky and had the right people influence me and I grew up in the right times. So really, you're talking about that curiosity was nurtured at an early age for you, really. It was there, you didn't question it, it just existed. Did all your pursuits as a young man then, did they all focus about learning and experiencing? Was there a thread when you look back? Like, was it always about, I'm going to be an astronaut? Or was it more about, oh, what's this? Oh, well, let's look at this. Or, oh, I want to go and do this now. How did it all kind of pan out? I would say it was the latter, meaning that um, I don't define myself as, a, as an astronaut. I define myself as, as an explorer. And, um, you know, a lot of astronauts after their career have, has come to an end, they have difficulty finding uh, new meaning in, in life. And I'm not talking about a lot of people. I mean, there's just a, a handful of people who have, who have struggled after their careers have wound down. But that was never the case for me. And I think it's because since an early age, I just had this uh, curiosity about not just space, but also about um, about society and about our physical world and, and nature. And um, so for me, Life is all about exploring and, and learning new things. Uh, it's, it's about curiosity, not just in space, but in, um, in science as well. When I was young, 
Um, you know, I always sort of thought that uh, nuclear fusion as a source of energy was just around the corner. So I would get excited and, and read about that. I always sort of thought that, you know, we'd be curing cancer uh, in my lifetime. That hasn't happened, but it's still out there. And uh, I'm always very curious and, and talk to people and read uh, articles about uh, what's next in the, the world of oncology or, or how we can uh, actually address uh, this issue. Architecture, when I, I still like to travel uh, and I like to see uh, new architecture because it's a, a new way of, of being creative and using human creativity to, to create uh, comforts and, and inspiration uh, for people. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's the latter. It's, it's, um, it's not just um, that I was wanting to be an astronaut when I was young. I think that below that, one level below that is that I wanted to understand our world and I wanted to be part of pushing back frontiers. And you believe that came from the combination of the area you grew up in, the area you grew up in and the support of your parents. They encouraged you to ask questions and you had the two influences there. You had the dreamer, but also you had the solid force of of pragmatism as well. And that kind of fed into that kind of mindset. In my case, uh, that's true. But, you know, there's probably a hundred other people that I probably uh, should mention as well uh, that were all part of that. Uh, So I'm definitely not saying that the opportunity to be a curiosity-driven individual no longer exists. Uh, It it certainly does exist today. I've met all kinds of young people who have had also great parents and great teachers, great professors and um, great coincidences in life that have uh, spurred them on. I agree. And I think it's the same, you know, it's certainly the same for me. It's that if that's encouraged from a young age, you just take it for granted. And what can we do, Bob, to help people who kind of are curious, but sort of, you know, I think it's really easy when you're very young and you and you figure that out from a very young age, that being curious is just fantastic. And you, you know, you don't have any qualms about picking up a book and reading or trying to learn something. And how do we help people who come to that kind of a little bit later in life and may not be as confident about their curiosity. What, what would you suggest they do to begin that for themselves? I think um, curiosity can be nurtured. So one of the things that I, I do a lot of now, now that I'm uh, no longer an active astronaut, is, is read. Uh, mm-hmm. I read books. I read thoughtful uh, magazines. I read thoughtful uh, newspapers as, as well to find out what other people are uh, involved in. I also uh, do a lot of volunteer work. So I I work for organizations that are doing good things in in the areas that are important to me. And those three areas that are important to me today are exploration, innovation, and education. So I get involved with people and organizations that continue to push these uh, frontiers. Uh, I do not stay home and, um, you know, just enjoy life. That's it's one of the messages that I'm, I'm telling a lot of citizens today during this COVID-19 pandemic. Don't use this as an excuse to, um, to sit back and, and wait. Continue to be active, put structure in your day, have a to-do list that you work through uh, every day. So, so continue to be engaged. You know, yeah. one other thing I'd like to say, Neve, is that yeah. um, as I get older and older, I think that the role of role models, very, very important. Yeah. Especially yeah. during COVID-19, a lot of uh, unsung heroes are suddenly becoming visible and known, and a lot of leaders are really stepping forward, and I find um, them to be inspiring. You know, If we're going to beat some of these uh, global crises, our measures have to be 
scientifically based. They have to be evidence-based. Uh, we can't do knee-jerk reactions. Um, and um, I just look out and I see some of these role models out there who inspire me and I, I wish to emulate them. So I, I guess in a nutshell, to answer your question, I would say, number one, continue to read, continue to be active, try to make a difference, make move the social yardstick so that um, we can make progress. And then um, try to emulate uh, the most admirable role models who are um, mm-hmm. who are out there and who have that curiosity and who want to make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Everything you focus on, you do really well at. You know, so you know if we just go through your academic career. So you have a degree and a master's in mechanical engineering, and a PhD in medicine from McGill, and then an MBA from MIT. So did that happen? one moment of curiosity at a time or was there a strategy that you had kind of figured out by the time you were 17? Did you have a plan or how how did all of that happen? I didn't have a plan, but I had a vision. My vision was to, if an opportunity arose, to get involved in the space business and specifically to fly in space. When I was young and that vision um was a seed notion. There was no significant space program in Canada at the time. There certainly was no astronaut program. But nevertheless, my fascination with uh, exploration in space played a role in the direction that my educational path went. So, for example, when I was in um, grade school, uh, I excelled in, um, in, in the sciences, in biology, chemistry, physics, and in the maths as, uh, as well. So then I went on to do uh, an engineering degree in mechanical engineering for the same reason as as well. And uh, talking about influencers, uh, there is one professor I I remember. His name is Dr. Walker. He sort of noticed something different in me, and he took me aside one day and asked me what my my life ambition was. And uh, I told him, you know, if I had the opportunity, I'd like to get involved in, um, in space. So he said, well, you, um, you might want to do this and this and this uh, to move forward on that, um, on that vision. So at that point in my life, uh, I started to, get, started to put together a plan of how I could um, move on to a, a space career. So uh, I'm very grateful for Dr. Walker's advice. One of the things, the shocking things he said to me was I should get a medical degree. <laughs> and, uh, as you know, that's another four or five years after uh, you know, get a, a medical degree. But uh, when I thought about it, it actually uh, made sense. So what I would encourage for any of the young listeners um, to the podcast today is if you have um, a vision of what you want to do, if you have a dream of what you want to accomplish in life, don't worry if you don't have an exact plan for it, but make sure that you vocalize your your Mm -hmm. plan. Don't keep it a, a, a hidden plan. Uh, tell your parents, tell uh, your teachers, tell your professors, tell your friends, because there's a lot of people out there in the world who, if they know what you what your secret ambition is, can actually help you put together a, a rational uh, plan. So I had a lot of really good advice from um, from friends and professors who um, guided me on on the way when Canada was eventually ready to have its uh, own astronaut program, and I applied. I was I had pretty good qualifications. Uh, when I um, uh, applied, and it's, I'm, I'm grateful to a lot of the people who helped me develop the plan. But it's not just qualifications that makes an astronaut, isn't it? What is it? What what are the what are the really essential skills of why some people get selected, even though on paper, academically, they have everything? Well, I would sort of say that there's. Um, 
a number of skills that a person needs to have well-developed in order to be considered uh, for an astronaut program. Number one, I would say technical skills or operational skills. And, um, and the reason for that is that uh, a lot of the work that we do in space is highly skilled work. So examples would be spacewalking or what astronauts call EVA, uh, robotics work, uh, rendezvous and docking skills, assembly work, uh, maintenance and repair skills as, as well. Those are technical skills that have to be highly honed uh, when you travel in space. So you use those skills every day. But you're right. Uh, I also think of um, non-technical skills uh, as well, or maybe another word for that would be personality traits for the, um, the astronaut job. And for that, I'm talking about, um, again, vision, talking mm. about decision-making capabilities, problem-solving capabilities, self-care and self-management, teamwork and group living, followership and leadership, and then cross-cultural yeah. skills as, as well. And these skills that I just mentioned, they are particularly important for long-duration or stressful uh, space flight. A six-month expedition aboard the International Space Station or a future two-and-a-half-year mission to, um, to Mars. You know, you can't fly to space and be a miserable person. You just will, your, your team just will not achieve their mission objectives if, if everyone is miserable and, and nasty. But if everyone is collaborative and, and um, helpful and a, and a pleasure to be with for two-and-a-half years, you will accomplish your, um, your mission objectives. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When I was on the Space Studies program, uh, Bob, you gave a, a great lecture to us and you kind of shared excerpts of the diary that you kept when you were on the International Space Station. And it was sort of the first hint I had really found about the human side of uh, becoming an astronaut. You know, um, when people look from the outside of what makes an astronaut, it's that kind of, it's that mindset and it's it's incredible ability physically and mentally. But to hear the requirement to be mentally strong and to also have really good social skills was something that felt right, but very good to hear somebody sharing it as an experience. Did you write that diary every day or did, did you know it was going to be as useful as it became in the lectures that you've given since? Well, not all astronauts keep uh, diaries. It's a volunteer thing, but many do. Maybe the majority of astronauts uh, do. And uh, you're right. You know, we, we have good days in space and we have bad days in space. And some of the bad days are related to um, personal or interpersonal conflicts or situations that um, arise during the, the day. I think it's important that we share our experiences uh, after a flight is over with uh, the next crew that will follow us or with our instructors or with the flight controllers or the, the mission manager. Flying in space is not easy. It's, it's risky. It's difficult. It takes us to our um, extremes. So anything that we can do to prepare the next group that will follow us to excel uh, will make um, you know success uh, more likely in this harsh environment of of, uh, of, of space. Mm -hmm. So it's debriefing or passing on lessons learned is it's part of culture of, of the space program and certainly part of the culture of astronauts. When you said earlier on, when you were um, in space, that you were pushed to your limits nearly every day, can you give us an appreciation of what those limits were or examples of when you felt, wow, I didn't think I had that in me? 
Well, it wasn't just uh, during space flight. I, I would actually say, Neve, that uh, the training for space uh, is uh, more difficult than the actual mission. And that's for a, a couple of reasons. Number one is that um, uh, we always train on the ground for bad days in space, you know, so for fires and depressurizations or toxic atmospheres or medical uh, emergencies, because when these things happen in space, you're all alone. You don't have the support, uh, as much of the support of the ground to mm. help. So you need to be autonomous in your, um, in your reactions. Uh, and often you need to take immediate action in space because of the nature of uh, the problem that we're, we're facing in order to save the mission, the vehicle, or to save our, our lives. So the training is much more rigorous than spaceflight. Uh, a good example uh, during training, I guess, would be the time that I had to spend away from home. I had a young family when I was training for mm. my ISS mission. I think the longest time I was away was like maybe 13 weeks. You know, some of that time in in Russia, some of that time in um, Japan, mm. and um, and that's just going, going, going all the time. It's like drinking from a fire hose. And then you're missing your family as well. While I'm, you know, over in Star City, Russia, I, I can't deal with uh, family and household problems as they arise. So it's stressful for the family. It's um, mm. stressful for, for me as well. On orbit, I had the privilege of um, docking a, a Japanese spacecraft to a docking port on the space station using the, the Canadarm2, which is the, the robot manipulator mm. aboard the space station that was provided by Canada. And uh, this had never been done before. And uh, it was all in my hands to do this properly. Up until that point in time, the Japanese government had invested $1 billion, not million, $1 billion oh. in, in the spacecraft <laughs> program. So... Uh, you don't want to mess up. Um, nope. If you do, you will disappoint a lot of Japanese and you will embarrass your, your home country as well. So <laughs> those are the, the kinds of situations that um, that we can get into on the ground and, and on orbit that uh, take me to, um, like I was trying to explain, not just my mental limits, but your emotional limits as well. So, so what is your coping mechanism? What, what, how can you deal with that level of stress? What, what do you do? One of the techniques that we develop is called compartmentalization. And it's not just astronauts that do this, but um, a lot of other um, professionals that work on, um, you know, in the, um, the riskier professions as well will, will do this. Compartmentalization means that um, although on a, on, a, on a typical day you may have eight different matters that are, that are on your mind, uh, when it comes to spaceflight, you have to get rid of seven of those and just focus on um, on the job at hand. A good example would be launch. You yeah. know, when I'm sitting on the launch pad, seven million pounds of explosive propellant underneath me, um, it could be the last thing that I do. And I uh, could have said goodbye to my um, my family for forever. But you can't think about that. My I have a duty. There are you know checks to make during uh, ascent. There are switches to... Um, throw there are things to monitor there are radio frequencies to tune and if my mind is on anything but my operational tasks i am increasing the risk of the um, of the launch. compartmentalization means that you can reduce the risk of what you're doing by focusing on the, the task that um, is at, at, at hand that's mm -hmm. one of the things that one of the skills that i learned as an astronaut i actually apply that to uh, a lot of the work that I that I do here on, on Earth as well. I'm, I'm not really a big fan of multitasking. I, I like to focus on one thing at a time. So that really helps mm -hmm. me.
Connected with that, then I can imagine fear is a big part of managing fear must be a big part of getting the right mindset for that. How do you manage fear? Well, Neve, you're going to laugh when I say this, but um, my biggest fear of space flight is not losing my life. My biggest fear is messing up. <laughs> you know, like uh, when you fly in space again. You... It's such a high achiever thing. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, yeah, there's a lot of responsibility that, that we're taking on. You know, like when I'm in yeah. on board the International Space Station, you know, on, I could be, you know, four and a half months into the, into the mission. I'm operating some experiment. I have to give it 100% concentration, 100% of my, my attention, because it could be some experiment that some um, university PhD student is, uh, needs that data in order for her or him to, uh, to graduate, you know, next spring. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a lot of responsibility. And, and then, as I mentioned before, a lot of the hardware that we deal with in, in space has uh, international consequences as well. So you just really have to realize the, um, the load that's on your shoulders. And, you know, at, at the intro to this podcast, you said something that resonated with me. You, you said that, um, you know, I, I always try to uh, aspire to, to be the best that I can. And that's, again, something that my father taught me when I was young. You know, I was at home washing the car or he'd always say to me, anything worth doing is, is worth doing well. In other words, don't take on a task unless you're going to give it 100%. Yeah. So that's sort of my motivation. Yeah, so conscientiousness is a big part. But but on a, on a human level, launch, are you not afraid? Are you, or are you just so compartmentalized about, you know, fulfilling your role and making sure that you do it well? Fear is just not something you have time for. Well, I would say it's the compartmentalization mm. uh, mindset, but I'd also say it's the quality of the training that we receive is, um, as well. You know, as I mentioned, we train for off nominal days. We, we train for the worst circumstances that could befall a launch or on-orbit operations or, or a re-entry. And on both of my flights, as I walked to um, the launch pad, I was 99.99% uh, confident that uh, I was going to be able to accomplish everything that uh, I was being asked to do and, and ditto for my, um, my crewmates as, um, as well. Other people are different, that, that's for sure. But in my case, fear was not on my mind on either of my launch days. I was just, um, I just had the confidence in uh, the training that I had and also in the, the organizations that were behind me, the Canadian Space Agency, NASA, uh, the Russian Space Agency. I just had so much confidence in, um, in them that um, fear did not um, did not cross my mind. Yeah, if you said, you know, as I was just, you know, being lowered inside the spacecraft on, on the launch pad, if you would ask me, Neve, uh, Bob, do you realize this could be the last thing you do? I, I, mentally, I would say, yeah, you're right. Yeah, this could be the yeah. last thing I do. But um, emotionally, you know, I was, um, the fear had been pushed to the back. But yeah, on orbit, uh, when I'm operating uh, an experiment or operating the, the robotic arm, uh, there's a, a bit of fear there because, um, yeah. like I said, I, I do, did not want to disappoint people. I didn't want to mess up. Do you think your years growing up and, you know, where you grew up and being that explorer, do you think that helped when you can, you'd completely trust the training and you trust the system and because the training is so good, you can compartmentalize fear that way? Or do you think anybody can be shown how to behave that way around fear? That's a really good question. 
I don't know the answer, uh, but I'll, I think I'll say my upbringing had something to do with it. And um, I'm going to show my age when I, when I say what I'm about to say, but I worry about today's generation and whether they're spending too much time in front of their computers, in front yeah. of the television and in front of the video games. When I was young, a lot of that did not exist. Uh, no TVs existed. There was an opportunity to sit in front of the TV all day if I if I wanted to, but I, I didn't. I was outdoors. My parents would encourage me to be outdoors. We lived in in locations where the outdoors beckoned. When we had family uh, vacation in the summer, it was always a, a camping trip. So I think that being active and being in nature, I think that was one small part of the mindset that um, I developed. Yeah. So yeah. I would encourage, uh, again, any of your young listeners to, mm -hmm. um, to moderate, to manage um, the amount of time that they spend sitting in a chair and yeah. uh, getting outside, um, stressing their body, play sports, get involved in um, team activities. And I, I think those are the skills that you need to be not just a good astronaut, but to be a good explorer a good professional yeah i think it's not even this young generation i think there's a more and more required of us to sit in front of a computer and just even to get out and have a run feels something that you have to find time for rather than something that is part of who we are as humans you know we have a pair of legs for a reason we tend to get in our minds a lot more now because so much is required of us to you know to create so much digital content instead of physical uh, labor Right. That concerns so, you know, a minute ago, Neve, you were talking about, you know, some of the hints and tips that I pass on to the International Space University yeah. students about, you know, how to deal with um, self-care and self-management. And uh, one of the things that I emphasize is that if, you know, young people today wish to soar with the Eagles to uh, achieve their, their fondest dreams, then they really need to take care of their, their mind and their, um, their yeah. body. Yeah. And um, I see a lot of young people burning the candle at both ends and um, not eating as nutritionally balanced meals as they should. I, I try to do that. I exercise every day. And I think that gives me the stamina. It gives me the endurance. It gives me the performance to, um, to excel. Without that, I, my performance would drop. Yeah, there's, there's something in there for all of us, um, Bob, for sure. And, and let's talk about... Um... Let's just use the, the last part of this podcast to talk about your experiences on the shuttle and on the ISS. You very kindly gave me almost an hour of your time the first time we spoke. And you told me some beautiful uh, revelations that you had when you were on board the ISS on that long duration mission and how it impacted your whole perception of the environment. And can you just tell us a little bit about that view from space and why it can actually help us as a civilization or as a species to develop a better appreciation of our planet? You know, organizations, um, spacefaring organizations like um, uh, NASA and then the um, Russian, Japanese, European and Canadian space agencies fly their astronauts in space to accomplish mission objectives, to accomplish some research and, and development work. So there's, certainly there is a professional side of the experience for an astronaut flying in space. But as you're alluding to, there's also the personal aspect as, um, as well. 
So, you know, for me, the personal aspect was uh, flying with um, international crewmates from a variety of countries, people who come from different races, different ethnicities, different cultures, different political ideologies, different approaches to problem solving. To me, that was um, a bonus and something that I I really enjoyed. I remember some of our our late night dinners aboard uh, the space station and, and my European crewmate would try to explain to me how the European Commission works and I'd try to explain how the parliamentary system works and and uh, we, you know, in, in a sense, try to solve the problems of the world from on mm-hmm. from on high. That was um, that was pretty special, and it's some of my fondest memories. But we also have a lot of windows aboard uh, the space station and the shuttle, and there's an opportunity to just float by a window and, and gaze downward at this beautiful planet that um, we came from. For the first week that you're there, you're just entranced by the. Um, mesmerizing beauty of of the forest but also the the deserts and the oceans and the um the ocean atolls and um after maybe a a few weeks up there you begin to think of um, yourself as not a citizen of your own country you know not as a canadian or not as irish you sort of think of yourself as a world citizen and that's because there's no borders proceed from um from space, and it looks like one uh, one humanity, one nature, one civilization. And you also get this uh, sense that the nature down below is a connected ecosystem. And you can, from space, when you gaze down on it, you think about it, you can really see the connections between the land, the ocean, the atmosphere, the freshwater cycle, the flora, and the fauna. And you really appreciate that when there's a disturbance in one part of the world, so for example, maybe a forest fire in Siberia, you can see how the, the smoky plume from that forest fire can cross an ocean and impact the quality of air that people are breathing in, um, in North America. So you really get the sense that um, we are all one and that we're all connected. So when I came home from my uh, last flight, I think I was um, more of a world citizen. Um, you know, I'm still proud to be uh, Canadian, but I even more strongly, I, I feel that I'm a world citizen and that uh, the big issues that are out there for us to address today are global issues like poverty, inequality, overpopulation, and environmental damage. And those are the big problems. When you look down from space, you see that the difference between life on Earth and, um, you know, no life on Earth is, is razor thin. And that's particularly... Um, evident when you look at the thinness of, our, of the atmosphere that um, mm. veils mm. Our, our planet. That's all that's keeping us alive, and we are darn lucky to be um, alive on this planet. We're dumping pollutants into this atmosphere. So for me, I, I worry about the survival of humanity, and if we're going to survive 100 or 1,000 years from now as a civilization, and um, we as a global community be addressing these issues. Yeah. One of the things yeah. that... Um, worries me about the uh, COVID-19 pandemic as I, I hear a lot of uh, protectionist talk coming up. And, you know, people, you know, nations talking about uh, monopolizing their own supply chains for, you know, personal protective equipment and ventilators and things like that. I think that'd be a big mistake. Um, yeah. You know, we, we're a global community and instead of uh, becoming a bunch of silos, which would be a serious backward step, we should be learning how we can address these um, 
these global crises and pandemics is a world community. And it's, yeah. These are big problems, and we need a large number of brilliant minds and resources working together on them. And space yeah. is another example of that. Yeah. One of the things that, you know, I've been thinking about with the lockdown is that notion of, you know, thinking bigger in spaces, you know, I feel as a mindset makes you, it it almost forces you to think bigger, whether you're looking at it as an astronomer or uh, in, in any form of, of space exploration, human or just for science experiments. And the lockdown has really, really made me feel part of something bigger, you know, just because one part of the world, the pandemic, you know, the, the ore numbers, these infamous ore numbers go down, it's happening somewhere else. And we all need to work together because if we don't all act responsibly, uh, we will never really um, overcome this or it'll take as many years until we get the vaccine. And that global mindset, even talking to you today, if it if it had been like a normal festival of curiosity and we had this conversation, we would have invited you over and sat you down and you would have flown and you would have stayed for two days. And what I'm finding great is that people are quicker to reach out and it's easier to create a more global event or experience because we've kind of started to see ourselves digitally global. I hope if we can bring that into the way we see ourselves within that, that maybe we might retain something positive from this terrible time in our existence. I agree. I, I think that uh, overall the impact of COVID-19 has been um, been negative, but there are a lot, there's a lot of positivity uh, mm. from the pandemic as, as well. And you cited one right now, and we're, we're all becoming a little bit more comfortable with digital communication technology. So mm. uh, if we can transport ideas uh, around the world because of uh, our experience through COVID-19, I think that would be a big plus. So lastly, Bob, if there's any one nugget of wisdom that you've learned along the way that you'd like to share with us, or maybe a couple or something that somebody told you that would help us figure out how to pursue our own curious journeys. What what would that be? Um, I think I'd probably um, reiterate uh, something that my, my father said to me many years ago, and, and I think I've already said it during this uh, podcast, and that is that if you have a dream, pursue it. You know, a lot of dreams don't come come true. Like in addition to being an astronaut, I also wanted to. Um, be an NHL hockey player, which for a Canadian is, <laughs> that's, uh, that's, 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 that's what you desire. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, it's, uh, that's a dream that never came, uh, came true, uh, because it wasn't, um, you know, well suited for that, you know, and if you have a batting average of a, you know, maybe a third on, on your dreams that, um, come about, then I think that's, um, that, that's pretty good. And I was very lucky in that one of my most impressive dreams uh, to fly in space, that one uh, did come true. It takes um, persistence. Dreams don't fall out of the sky into your lap. Dreams don't come true by wishing on a on a star. They require careful planning and they re- require determination and uh, persistence as, as well. And part of that foundation of, um, of dreaming, I think, is education. So my father was always very encouraging of me to get his much appropriate education as uh, as is required. You know, at the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned some of the, the degrees that I've had, and I'm, I'm sure that some people are rolling their eyes when you, they hear about uh, my educational background, but all of those degrees, all of those um, programs that I, that I followed were uh, about 
achieving a, a dream that I that I wanted to fly in space. Dreams require sacrifice, so that's important. And, and in the end, I, I was fulfilled. I had a career that I was good at. I had a career that I enjoyed doing. I got up every morning. I couldn't get into the space center fast enough for the cool stuff that was um, awaiting me. And then I think I also uh, had a career where uh, what I did benefited uh, humanity as well. And uh, that's pretty good. That's a, a nice thing to reflect back on. It certainly is. You've, you've had quite a career and, and you're quite an inspiration on the ground as well. So thanks, Bob. And, and hopefully the next time you come to Ireland, we'll sit down and we'll, we'll have a further chat. I never cease to be inspired by you every time I talk to you. So thank you so much for your time today. Uh, thank you for your time. I, I'd love to come to Ireland and um, meet with your colleagues face to face. Great. We'll make it happen. If you like this podcast or if you like what I do or if you'd like to know more or have a question, you can sign up for updates on my website, neveshaw.ie. This podcast is funded by my loyal Patreon subscribers, the subscription content service that allows me to create and share exclusive videos, advanced episodes of this podcast, provide special deals and discounted offers for patrons of my work. And thanks to those patrons, I get to make the work I want to make and can continue in my mission to get to space in earnest. And in return, I get to include them all in the adventures every step of the way. I couldn't do any of it without their support and I will be forever grateful to them. So thanks. And maybe you'd like to become a patron too. So if you would like to support my mission to get to space as storyteller, further details of Patreon's membership benefits and about this podcast, upcoming events and activities, they're all available from my website, neveshaw.ie account. I'd love to hear from you, but we can connect in other ways too. If you're on Twitter, my handle is Dior underscore Neve underscore Shaw. If you're on Instagram, it's Dior underscore Neve underscore Shaw. Or on Facebook, follow my page, Get Neve to Space. If you just want to watch more content, you can check out my videos on my YouTube channel, Neve Shaw. Humans of Space is produced by Mark Gardner and Catherine Cunning at Oxford Sound Studio, Oxford in the UK, with music by Tom Beasley.